Creating a television show can sometimes feel like a sheer impossibility. And the fact that you get anything watchable in the end would be considered by most a miracle. Television productions can feel chaotic and disastrous. In many cases, you walk away asking each other, did we get anything today? As Russell shares in today's podcast, that was the exact thing Michael Carbonaro was asking after filming the pilot for his show, The Carbonaro Effect. For Russell Arch, the showrunner, he knew they had it. He was willing to bet his foreseeable future on it and forego his return to Howie Mandel's deal with it to continue working on the pilot for The Carbonaro Effect. I first met Russell over nine years ago on the set of The Carbonaro Effect. And of all the shows I've worked on, this is the one when I bring up my resume that people always react to the most. I hope you all enjoy Russell Arch. When a magician is performing for you, they are straight on to you. We always told Michael, fool the person and we'll figure out everything else later. Nine years ago, do you know where you were? Oh my God. So nine years ago would be 2014. This would probably be, was this your day at the uh, Telescience Center? This was the day of the rap party. Oh my goodness. Okay. For season one back order. Yes. That's okay. exactly correct. Okay. Yeah, and I, I had no idea how perfectly this lined up with that until I was, you know, hopping into the Facebook memories and seeing like where I was on this That's day. So I just thought funny. it was just like perfect timing to kind of like be reaching back and having this conversation. Actually, a year prior to that, right at the beginning of October was when we shot the actual pilot footage. Uh, and that pilot didn't end up airing until April 1st of 2014. But yeah, so we've been having 10 year anniversaries. I've been texting back and forth with Simon and Michael and all those people. But oh, yeah, it's been awesome. nutty. That's a long awesome. time ago. To go back even farther, because uh, I want to give people a, a sense of what it's like to, to get started in the film and television industry? Well, I, I'll go even a little bit further back to that and say I graduated from college from the University of Oregon where I wasn't able to take a lot of production or any kind of experience like that. But I had a friend that moved here prior a year prior to me and he wanted to be a musician. We came down and visited him and he made it seem like it was all possible to do. So I just hopped in a car with a friend of mine moved down, and then I did a year applying to temp jobs and whatever, and I actually caught on pretty quickly on a temp job that worked at a studio where Mad TV was being filmed the very first season. So, yeah, no, this was a wild. So I started working as the studio director's assistant right as Mad TV started shooting their first stuff. And I don't know if you remember the original Mad TV, but I was a – I watched Pulp Fiction in 1994 and like that is my, I just watched it like eight times in the theater, thought that was the greatest thing ever. And Phil Lamar, who played Marvin, was on Mad TV. So like I was calling my friends and saying, Marvin from Pulp Fiction is working here. (laughs) Mad TV, that is so cool. Mad TV was kind of my thing. I never got super into SNL when I was like a teenager. I got really into Mad TV. Okay, Uh, and what years would those be? I don't recall exactly what season it was, but I do know that like the characters I was really into, I think it was Stuart. Okay. It was, uh, I'm Michael McDonald and yes. Mo yeah, Collins and, played the, the mother. And uh, Key and Peele were on there as well. Sure. So um, they're and, after me. So I was, I literally was like 95 was when they first started shooting. I worked from 97 to 
maybe 2000. So there's like three seasons in there and then it went on. But Michael McDonald was there the last year that I was there and he was just a, he was a guy. So you could come into Mad TV with existing characters and Mm -hmm. he had been at the Groundlings. And so all of those characters like Stuart and stuff, he, they were already proven on stage, very funny. And so he came in like gangbusters. There's a lot of new actors that have a hard time getting stuff on the air and he was instantly a hit. Yeah. And uh, yeah, stuff like the the Stuart and stuff like that just absolutely took off. My wife was an actress on the, so I guess it was the third season of Mad TV. My wife was an actress. We ended up meeting there, have been married, good Lord, 20, I'm going to get myself in trouble, 23 years now. But uh, but yeah, wow. so then it just went from working at Mad TV in production, always trying to be a writer, never qu- was quite able to make that leap to being a writer. A writer on Mad TV? Like a sketch yes. writer? Yeah, so I ended up getting early work while I was working at that studio as a animation writer. So I wrote on a bunch of like kind of kids afternoon, like Animaniacs and uh there was a show called Toonsylvania that uh, Steven Spielberg created, and there was another show called Mega Babies. And so whenever I talked with writers at Mad TV, they were like, look, first things first, you got to get writing credits. And so literally, I just went out and tried to knock down as many doors as I could and got writing credits and stuff. And then I had a, I have a very weird relationship with the writing stuff at Mad TV because like, they seem to have a way at their show that was like, if you didn't come from the Groundlings or... UCB or one of these other places where you'd already written sketches, you were kind of seen as not ready to be a writer on the show. And for me, I would constantly, so I was friends with all of the cast members and stuff like that. So there was a couple of times where I'm like suggesting alternate endings. The cast member would do it in the run through and then that would get in the script. And so there'd be these little moments and stuff like that where, and then there was one time that I wrote, I would write sketch packets every year. And there was one time I had a sketch packet and this cast member, Deborah Wilson, I don't know if you remember her, but uh, she literally said after the table read, they had a moment where you could go in and meet with the producers and kind of talk through any of your sketches. And she didn't have anything to talk through. And she'd read a sketch of mine and she said, give me that sketch. I like it. So she went in and said, I want to read through this sketch. She handed out packets to all the people. They read it through and everyone in the room loved it. Mind you, this is 2000. So this was a sketch about a dad who had a video camera who was getting so into shooting home movies that he was almost becoming like a maniacal director. So he was yelling cut and having people go outside and come in again. And so it's a daughter coming home with her boyfriend and the dad is just acting like Stanley Kubrick trying to make everything perfect and he's recast their son. So when he's introducing the son, it's actually a community college actor and the son is back in the back room (laughs) because he was flubbing his lines. So at any rate, it seemed like that sketch was going to get on the air. They had me rewrite it a couple of times, and it just never quite made that leap. And so, yeah, I had a I had a frustrating experience there towards the end with them, just trying to get stuff on the air and doing whatever I can. That's got to be, like, so frustrating. That's got to make you, like, like it, it almost makes you want to doubt your ability, right? Like, when someone keeps telling you no like that. Well, this is the button on that story is the last season that I was there— I went to the guy who was the head writer on the show and I said, I'm going to turn in a sketch packet and then I'm going to look for work elsewhere. 
unless I get a writing gig. Like I'd done it a few times. I'd had that moment where I'd written something that they liked. I had credits. I'd kind of answered all the questions they told me I need to have answered. And so I turned in a sketch packet and then I individually took all the sketches and took them to the actors that those were those characters and said, hey, here's a sketch I wrote for you. If you like it, let them know. You might want to have me on staff or whatever. And mm -hmm. so nothing happened. And I said to the head writer, just even if this is terrible, can you just call me and tell me what you liked, what you didn't? So I'm on some sort of right path. So I hear nothing about it. And then the next fall, during that time off, Lisa and I had uh, gotten engaged. That head writer calls and says, hey, uh, we are taking one of Russ's sketches out of his packet and producing it. And what he got, we want to give you guys money as kind of an early wedding gift. Wow. And I thought, that is weird. Like, I never got a call. I never got whatever. And I had a friend on staff in the script department. So I called up and said, have you heard of this sketch? And he goes, yeah, it's in the, <laughs> it's in the, it, we're shooting it today. Like, it had been fast-tracked. It had been in a table read. They liked it so much. It was being shot that week. And uh, it ended up that the, the actor or the, the actor, I think, took the thing into a writer, wasn't getting enough stuff on the air, took my sketch in, they rewrote it. And then when it was on its rehearsals, the head writer's assistant actually call, or said to him, hey, I see you took Russ's sketch. And he's like, what are you talking about? This is <laughs> this writer and this actor's sketch. And she goes, well, it's in his packet. And so they had to open it up. And so I guess retroactively, they had to pay me for the, the sketch or whatever. But that was one of those things where when you say you're doubting your abilities, it was almost like that thing where you want to take your name off a test and hand it into a teacher and mm -hmm. get an A and say, aha, like that was all the affirmation I needed is that when my name wasn't on the sketch, they liked the concept of it. So you go from Mad TV to what, what's your next your next so job. I left for Mad TV. I was the production coordinator on the show. And so then I somehow got a job being a script supervisor on a show called World's Most Amazing Videos, which is a bizarre. It was taking real reality clips and then writing like a dramatic uh, writing like a dramatic kind of narrative to it. And then Stacy Keach would read the thing and then you would just replay the reality footage over and over again. And I think it might have been an NBC show. I'm not 100% sure. But anyway, I came on that as the uh, script coordinator. And two of the head writers on that show were two guys that got me my first hidden camera job. So, again, I just went in there as the scripty. I started writing some funny things. I was actually, I'm kind of a cartoonist. So I would, like, do some cartooning and stuff. And they thought I was funny. So I ended up working with them on another reality show. And then they went and did a a show for VH1 called Radical Recut, which was taking old music videos and cutting them with reality clips as well. And while we were working on that show, they got an offer to work on a NBC hidden camera show called Spy TV. And they just okay. kind of took me along. And that was literally trial by fire, the first uh, hidden camera job I ever had. And you just jumped into that. And I've always been a person who loves practical jokes and how you have to set them up right and that stuff. And if you have that kind of mentality to really kind of think through the details, if you've ever snuck somebody into a surprise party without them knowing, you might be a good hidden camera producer because that's really what it takes is to kind of get inside of the head of a person and try to get them in a situation with as little of that suspicion as possible. 
would you consider yourself to be more of a, a director or a showrunner? Like what? And, and and then, honestly, really define a showrunner because it's one of these terms that like, like the average person doesn't hear. In the scripted world, a showrunner is always a writer. In the reality world, it can be kind of different things. And I kind of came in, but I came into the very first day that I was contacted to work on the Carbonaro Effect on the pilot. I was supposed to be a writer. I was supposed to write the BS or suggested BS for Michael for these tricks. All the stuff about how NASA invented this and, you know, oh, you haven't seen this before. So, like, that was what I was contracted to write. And then directing is something that I love doing because it is just, but when you're a showrunner, you literally are involved in everything. So, when you sit there and you look at a schedule and you say, we're shooting Monday, Wednesday, Friday, we're shooting this location, that location, that location. And on a hidden camera show, you have to sign up for a camera package that exists with you for the entire season. So you want to get enough cameras and enough equipment to fit into all these different scenarios, but you don't want to rent too much that you're blowing the budget. And so the, the showrunner is really just a person that's involved in every decision through that, including how soon... Like, we always had this struggle when we were shooting on Carbonaro Effect. How many days do we have to shoot before we can put together our first episode? Before editors can start and we can start actually turning that lump of clay into an episode. Because if you wait too long, then your post after you've wrapped goes on too long. And that's also expensive. And so that's what a showrunner's doing. A showrunner is literally zoom out. They're involved in everything. If you're a director... You have to kind of do a walkthrough and set up cameras and set up that stuff. And then on the day, you're working hard. But once you wrap, you are done. And for me, when I'm just a director, sometimes that's the most frustrating part of the job is that your stuff may go to an editor who either doesn't care or doesn't get what you were trying to shoot. And if you're not there to talk them through it, <laughs> you can see I worked on another show where I literally had like the payoff to a joke the editor put it right up at, at the front of the trick. So it's like, it wasn't as fun. We, I did a show called Off Their Rockers that was uh, old people pranking young people. And so you could kind of write anything you wanted. But one of the tricks was uh, out on the Santa Monica Pier, you had two old people who were, who were fishing off the edge of the pier, which is a totally normal thing. But part of the pier is over the sand, part of the pier is over the water. So we just have them fishing off the edge of the pier, one of the guys goes, did you get it? Did you get it? And he waves a young guy up and goes, he got it. He got it. Come here. And when they go over and peer over, the other old man is reeling up a girl's bikini top. Very cheesy joke, but you don't reveal the bikini top until the guy looks over and reacts. Then you show what it is. And when I got the, I got the first cut of the episodes of those shows, I wasn't allowed to really work with Post. That bikini thing was literally right up at the top. <laughs> the old man's going, do you got it? Do you got it? And they cut to the bikini top coming up. And then they wave the guy over. And it's one of those things where it's like, does it work? Sure, it still works. But it's one of those things where as a director, you're trying to give the parts and pieces to make a thing pay off. And then if you're not involved, if you're not a showrunner or you're not a, a lot of times directors will be co-EPs or on that show in the second season, I was a supervising producer. And so I did have some, I guess on the first season I was supervising producer. So I did have some say in the edits to kind of fix things. Um, but yeah, that that's kind of the rough differences. Directors are involved in a smaller piece of time. And there were times on 
uh, Carbonaro where I was directing and show running at the same time. And that was the hard part is that you were in the truck so you could hear me talking to Michael. When I would direct, I would have two microphones. I'd be talking to camera people and I'd be trying to talk to Michael and this would sometimes suffer. And so Michael didn't like, I mean, obviously like he needs to know step left, step right. He's doing so much on that show uh, that he needs as much support as possible. Um, and so, yeah, there was for the entire part of that run, it was basically hiring a director. I'd sit right next to him. I would go and help him place the cameras and stuff like that. But then on the day they were calling the, the cameras and I was, I was talking to Michael. When I think back to being in that control room and how crazy it was, <laughs> it's oh, like, yeah. it, it could get, uh, almost like, uh, almost like a basketball game sure, or a hockey Not, game. Yeah. I mean, I've seen the, the footage of directors on Super Bowls, and, and the thing you realize about a Super Bowl is you can't tell the players to redo a play. You either get it or you don't, and that's the same thing. When you're shooting legit hidden camera, you have no yeah. idea where someone's going to go. You have no idea how they're going to react. You try to talk through every, you know, when we walked through those situations, especially the ones that were the, the difference between the regular bits that there's, for people that don't know how the Carbonaro effect is structured, we had an act one and an act two, and then what we called the act three, four. We actually called it the act four, but that's a much bigger trick. That trick spanned a commercial break where we had to have like a moment where they went nuts and then we went to commercial. And so on the act one and two tricks, for the most part, Michael's at a counter at like a Michael's. And so he's showing you or a Target or a grocery store and he's showing you a trick and there's big reactions, but there's not people getting scared and running. Those act four sometimes were like, well, you know that with the crabs, mm -hmm. the cats lady. Like she did, yeah. we did everything we could to keep her in that room because at a certain point she just wanted to leave. Uh, like everyone, everyone who's in a situation like that, they just want to get out and, and get away and we don't have cameras outside the room. So in that I'm instance... Yeah, and you can't you can't pull the cameras to follow them like you no. can in so many other reality shows. Correct. Yeah, I worked on I edited for Scare Tactics and wrote for Scare Tactics, and they had a camera called a runner cam that they had to use often because you're doing a horror movie and people don't like being in a horror movie and they sprint and, <laughs> and run or whatnot. But yeah, we had we had several people leave, and we were always under the impression that that was not a good trick. We had to get through the reveal. We had to get through that. And so like a lot of times those runners were shown in specials afterwards. We ended up creating a whole kind of separate series called Double Takes, which was showing you the person that aired originally. And then we were going to show you a different person. And so we put a bunch of those runner people in those episodes because they're still hysterical, but it re really does feel like a movie that ends at act two. <laughs> you don't get to see the resolve at all. They're just gone. On the Carbonaro effect, obviously, I was operating the camera. I I didn't really know anything outside of that. Okay. Uh, who who was coming up with these ideas? <laughs> like, so, Michael had a. I came up with some, but not as many. As it went on, the, Michael had a very very good staff of magicians who sat around a table, and they would either. You know, sometimes they'd have the whole trick. Sometimes they'd have, oh, here's this magic element that I like, and somebody would add on something, and it would all the time kind of blossom into these tricks. And then Michael, for his, for the show, it was fantastic for his work ethic and for his exhaustion. 
Like he would tweak them all the way to the end. Like he would, he was always worried about what was going to make the best trick. How is this going to work the best going all the way through? And so, yeah, like, but David Regal, you can go mm-hmm. through, the, magi- people know these magicians and stuff all the time, but like we had a fantastic staff of magicians, Darren Berger, Chad Sanborn, um, Matt Schick, all of these great minds just coming up. Michael Weber, I keep coming up with names as we're going along. They had an, an entire apartment or room called the Magic Room, and that thing was humming 24-7, seven days a week if they needed, just literally working with the art department to create props, fixing things. There would be times, our frustration was as a showrunner, <clears throat> we would have to submit tricks to the network, and the network would go, we like this trick or we don't like this trick. That kind of stuff, and so that and that that was all happening like months ahead of time, right? Correct. Yeah. So the very first thing that would happen on every order was uh, Simon Fields, Nathan Fields, myself. We would kind of come up with a list of potential locations. So you'd literally try to go liquor store. Uh, you know, we shot at a pool supply place. We'd have all these different things, and you'd submit forty to 50 of those to the network in the hopes that you would get them to approve 2530. And then they would kind of go through and, and the, the magicians had some insight, uh, some stuff on that as well. And so then once we had like kind of a rough idea of what the locations were, then David Regal would kind of like brainstorm some, you know, potential tricks and stuff like that. Then he would be checking in with Michael the whole time. And then it would just, once we kind of like carved out what stuff we could actually get, then we would start kind of flushing out more tricks and stuff like that. And occasionally we would do stuff where we'd take a location and say, on day one, we're going to do counter tricks. And on day two, we're going to do an act three, four. Um, and we did that towards the end of the run. We got the Chicago White Sox Stadium, which was fantastic. And we got to shoot during a game where Michael was a vendor. <laughs> and it's the most, if you ever watch it, it's the most crazy thing we ever shot at because before the game, you have 15,000 fans just walking in front of our cameras, and we actually couldn't shoot. We had to wait until the game started. And then it's still a ton of people, but it's less than you could actually see the trick. And then on day two, we came back on an off day and shot a trick where they were supposedly doing a PR event for a very special baseball that was being donated back to the White Sox. And that's a fantastic trick as well. But yeah, that was a way where we, we literally secured a location, were able to get those two days on the calendar, write the tricks for both. But that was also a trick that evolved so much, even leading up to the days of shooting it, uh, that it's fantastic. If you watch the trick, we literally had a moment where Michael accidentally lights the uh, baseball on fire. And the, the this priceless baseball, the leather comes off of it. And as we were getting ready to shoot, we realized on the weather, it's going to be like 30 degrees outside at the stadium. <laughs> so we, we got all of these, you know, those propane tanks that have a heater on top of them. We needed that just to keep people somewhat warm, but we ended up using that in the trick to help ignite the baseball. So it's literally, there's moments like that that happen all the time where you're just like, it's, it's things that just come together that you'd never expect. And then they work out better than you thought. What is the current status of the Carbonaro effect? It is done. Like it is, so yeah, and if that's Michael's choice, I think Michael hit a point, I think I was talking about earlier where it just is, it was such a weight on him. Like every mm. time you picked up a show, 
he would have, I'm trying to think how many shoot days we would have. But at any rate, let's say we had 30 shoot days. He's got to come up with probably 140 tricks and make sure they're all good. And there was just no way for him to balance the two. And I think he did five seasons of it. I think they wanted to maybe pick him up for many more seasons. I think he might have done it if he was only able to pick up a finite amount of more episodes, but that's not really the way TV's picked up. Uh, and so I think he was happy with, with moving on from it and is, is very happy with happy. the kind of the legacy and what's out there for people mm-hmm. to watch. Yeah, I mean, I mean, he's doing his live shows and I think oh, those, yeah. are, those are doing great. Yeah, the live show is, is, I always tell anyone, anyone online, I'm constantly online when people say it's fake. I'm the first person to say, I have too many gray hairs. I was too stressed out making that to ever let somebody say that we were using actors and not putting in work to try to get this stuff done. And so when people will say stuff like, he's not a magician, I'm like, go see him live. Like, if you see him live, you will never doubt that ever again. And the, the tough part for us as a hidden camera show was, if you know magic at all, you know that magic is such angles. Like when a magician is performing for you, they are straight on to you. And what people don't realize for our show is that trick. We always told Michael, fool the person and we'll figure out everything else later. And so if you watch the show, whenever somebody walked up to a counter, we would have stuff kind of blocking their ability to step left and right. Cause even those few inches, we had our cameras kind of they're locked in hides over their shoulder. And if, they're, if they even take two steps to the right, that our cameras are messed up. We can't really see the trick. Michael can still do the trick for them and we can probably get a reaction from them. So on those counter bits, we're trying everything we can to get them in a particular situation. And in the act fours, there's generally a work table where Michael's saying step over there to work so that we can create that same kind of line. And, but even with that, even with this is where the mark is looking at Michael and here's the camera coming over, even that seven to 10 degree difference can sometimes expose the magic. And like Michael said, in a live show, he doesn't mind if, if magic flashes here or there, but with DVRs and the ability for people to frame by frame, if we had exposures and stuff like that, we would try to edit around it. And so many people go, oh my God, they're editing so much. And it's like, well, we had to. There's many times where the distraction or the whatever just didn't work out perfectly because it's a real person. Like if, if it was, a, the irony is if, if, if it was an actor, we could say, stand right here. We could put the camera literally right over their shoulder and we'd have no issues. But because they're real people and you realize this ever, if you're ever shooting real legit hidden camera, you have no idea. One mark will react one way, the next mark will walk in and they will react a thousand degrees different. Who was it that, and this may be more of a question for for Phil Britton, I'm I'm not sure. Uh, who was it that like fell in love with the snap zooms? Because anytime like a mark was shocked, there was a like a, a well, snap zoom. Phil in. was the cameraman, so on the pilot episode, Phil was a cameraman, and Leo uh, Sherman. I'm a, I hope that's right. Please confirm that's right. Was our director, and Phil was that Mark camera. Okay, and I didn't so, know this. Yeah, and so what we he I think he did that organically, and I kind of walked up to him and said, "That's genius," because so much of what the Carbonaro effect is not. Occasionally, we get these giant eyes and people, but a lot of times it's just a furrowed brow, or they kind of raise one eye, or they do something. They do something very subtle, and so I always felt like that little push 
helped accentuate those moments. That's also why most hidden camera shows do not shoot the close-ups like this because you don't know where people are going to go. But because we'd have them in bar stools or stand there, we'd feel a little more comfortable. But because the reactions were that subtle, we need to be in this close to really register a lot of those facial you know, things. And then when you see a huge reaction, like the girl with the fishbowl at uh, Richard's Variety Store, it was one of the best locations we ever shot at because their merchandise was so eclectic. Our tricks just literally blended in with whatever they had. But uh, yeah, that might be the biggest reaction we ever had on the show is where Michael has that flat book. It's a pop-up book and he pulls a, a little goldfish bowl out and her eyes are so huge. I just remember being in the truck and just going, oh my God, I've never seen <laughs> anyone react like that. But that's the other thing that this is a nice anecdote is Michael, when he's doing these tricks, when the trick happens, Michael was never looking in their eyes. I mean, he always would be like, if he's pulling the goldfish bowl out, he would look down and pull it out. And so he would never see their reaction. And it was a great thing because he didn't look at them. They felt emboldened to react however they wanted to react. But when we were coming home from the pilot, he came up to me in the airport. I'd, so my story on the pilot was I was supposed to go and work on a different show. I'd already agreed to go work on a different show. But like day two of the Carbonara Effect pilot, I was like, this show's going to go and it's going to be huge. And it's getting the reactions that you wait months for on a regular hidden camera show. This is getting it every day. So I was doing everything I could to secure a job with Simon. And so when we were flying back, I'd already turned down that other gig on a pilot. I just said, I'll edit the pilot, but when it goes, I want to be a co-EP or better. And he said, yeah, if it goes, great. So like I'm standing in the airport and Michael comes up to me and goes, did we get anything? <laughs> like he literally thought he, we had nothing. And I'm like, I wanted to say like, I literally turned down, I think it was 26 or 30 weeks of work to work on the pilot because this is so good. I know it's going but it was just hysterical, that whole thing of like, if you're not eyeballing these people and seeing those reactions. And so there was many times where during the show, there'd be a huge reaction, but the person wouldn't say anything. And you could tell Michael was almost ready to kind of end the trick early. And I'm like, no, no, no. You'd have to be in his ear immediately and say, it's a big reaction. This is an A plus. Like we'd grade them after they were done A plus to F. And you'd have to tell him that that reaction was big to keep him going if there were extra beats to the trick or whatever to keep him kind of energized to go through because he's not looking. Now, if you don't mind me asking, the show the show you turned down, what was that show? That was a show I'd already done a season of it. It was called Deal With It. It was a Howie Mandel TBS show, and it's another really, really good show. Um, and that one was people would come into situations, so like let's say you and your wife are eating at a restaurant, they would say, would you like to have your meal for free and fill out a, a thing to, you know, judge the food? And you say, sure. So they say to you, come on to the back. And when you go into the back, Howie Mandel's there and says, we're shooting a <laughs> hidden camera game show. Will you put an earpiece in? And then we're going to give you challenges to do in front of your wife. And then, but you can't tell her you're on TV. And so it's always a partner or friend or something acting crazy in a public space for to try to win money but the other person has no idea what's going on and so it was a it was another really really good show um and i did the first six episodes of that we went away for the summer they said they were going to pick it up and like i was in i think it was like late august when i was contacted and i was supposed to go back like mid-october maybe late october to start editing 
um, and the carbonaro effect just came up, and it was one of those ones where I was only going to do like the pilot, so I was only going to do. I think originally I wasn't even supposed to travel to the pilot where it was shooting. I was just supposed to write the stuff. But as I talked to Simon and said, here's my experience, here's what I've done, he said, would you come to Atlanta? And then that just kind of took off from there, which is so much of what this business is. is you never know when an opportunity's coming. You take every meeting you can. You talk to everyone you can because you just don't know, you know what's going to lead to anything. When you were coming back from Atlanta that you – we're kind of negotiating your way into a, a position on the, the full run of the show. So you, you didn't even have that when you signed up for the pilot. No, not at all. I was, a, I literally might've been, I might've had a consultant. I don't even know if I had a credit on anything. Cause a lot of times when you're talking about pilots, you're just kind of helping them kind of dot all their I's and cross their T's with the network. I think the network was like, what is Michael actually going to say to be funny? And, the instinct is to say, well, he's a funny guy, you know, just trust him. But the network's always like, well, just give us. <laughs> and so like I was kind of brought in to write some stuff, submit it to Michael. Michael gave it the thumbs up. Then we gave it to True. But on the day and on the pilot and stuff like that, he's he's 90% of that stuff is just him. He's just – and we'll, like the cool part with him is we would kind of talk through little bits and pieces and he'll use what he wants. He doesn't use what he doesn't want. But, man, he's uh, – I've said over and over again, I've worked with a ton of hidden camera people. He's the best actor I've worked with, and he's doing magic, and he's trying to... The other thing people don't realize when they watch the show is magicians so often are these flamboyant people with rings on their fingers, so when they hold this thing up, you're totally looking here, and you're not looking at you know what they're trying to do. Michael had to tone all of that down to be this regular person. Otherwise, everyone's going to go, you're a magician. So like every little thing he's showing you, he's not doing with the flair that a magician would. He's doing it very subtly. And like he said, man, he feels naked. Like he feels like he's not properly. But then again, you have that benefit of you're not telling them you're a magician and they're not in a location where they suspect a magician. But we still had moments here and there where somebody go, are you a magician? Just because, you know, there were just little things here and there, but he did an amazing job kind of toning that stuff down to be a regular person and still pulling off magic tricks. Have you seen the Netflix show Magic for Humans? I have. Do you, you can say pass or skip if you want. Do you feel like that kind of, kind of uh, took inspiration, if you will, from the Carbonaro effect? I do and I don't for the fact that they didn't do the retail stuff really at all. And a lot of their stuff is kind of, um, so this is the part when, when people get, uh, kind of touchy about this is fake, that's fake. There's varying levels of that stuff on everyone. And I never want to speak for someone else's show, but I do know they had a thing that went viral. There was a guy who was disappearing, uh, he's in like a park and he comes down as a volunteer and they make the person across from him disappear and then they pull the sheet off him. I think you've seen, everyone's seen the trick where they do with kids and then he thinks he's disappeared. There's exposed cameras there. There's, so it's, it's literally like a different thing where, and he's done a video where he said he showed up for a casting and they put a microphone on him and he is a wannabe, like he wants to be an actor, performer. So there's that thing of, to me, as a absolute person, 
hidden camera purist, I would say once you're putting a microphone on somebody and once they see cameras kind of exposed, you're not getting 100% hidden camera. Because that just are, I had a very odd experience 20 years ago on a show that was a, this was a dating kind of show in a studio where it was called Friends or Lovers. And they'd have like two college kids come out and it was always about, hey, I've been fooling around with your friend Susie and somebody would get upset and blah, blah, blah. Those were real stories as far as I could tell. Like they were reacting real. But we had a moment on one of our shows where the director went, hey, we didn't get the host saying this one line. And the line was to a girl. And so they said, we're going to reset up. You guys can just sit there. And the host literally turns to this girl and says, so what did you feel when Steve told you? And she started crying and reacting as she did in the show. And that's where I started realizing, oh, my God, you don't even have to tell people to act. If you set up the parameters that it's a take two, people will try to give you what you think. And that's what I think when you put people in a situation where they even know it all, that cameras are around and you're shooting something, you're not getting that 100% pure reaction. Um, and so, yeah, that that's all I would say about that. I, I, I think that the Carbonaro effect definitely put magic. But then again, there was a show that was on... What was that show? There was a show called Don't Trust Andrew Maine that came out while we were shooting our pilot. So it was like, I think magic and hidden camera. But then again, you watch that show and there was some, though that one had, you know, shoulder mounted cameras that they literally showed people walking up on almost like the old David Blaine thing. So yeah, I mean, it's all also that weird thing of whenever I start on a hidden camera show, like on Betty White's Off the Rockers, I love to ask the executives, were my plan is to shoot real hidden camera. <laughs> is that okay? Because so many people want that control of knowing that you can go back and ask somebody to act and ask somebody to pick something up or whatever. In my opinion, it's diminishing returns. You never, you know, how many great actors are there alone in the world, let alone thinking you're going to bring in 12 or 15 of them and get them to do everything you want them to do. It just, it's so much easier. And it goes back to how hidden camera started. It's all about removing the idea that you're, you have the pressure of what rolling or action or any of that stuff is. You, people don't realize that pressure is everything to normal people and even to actors. And so to push that aside, I don't know if you know the story of how uh, Alan Funt, the guy that created Candid Camera, created it literally in the army in like the 1940s. He was a radio host in, and forgive me if I'm wrong on the details, but he was a radio host who was interviewing GIs for Armed Forces Radio or whatever. He would bring them into the studio. He would talk them through a pre-interview. He'd say, you know, what's your name? Where do you work? What's your job? They were fantastic. And then he'd say, perfect. So I'm gonna basically, this red light's gonna go on, we'll be on the air. We're going to do the exact same thing. <laughs> and they'd say, great. And then the red light would go on and he'd say, what's your name? And they'd be like, uh, I'm private, uh, such and such. And they couldn't remember. They couldn't do whatever. And so finally he went, screw it. Cover up that red light. I'm just going to bring him in. We're going to roll. And I'm going to do, I'm going to say it's a pre-interview, but it's actually the interview. And then boom, he got whatever he wanted. And so he realized the power of removing that from people's psyche that you're not rolling and so then he went on, and for, the, for a few years, I think he had a show called Candid Microphone 
that wasn't even didn't even have cameras and then later on he added cameras to it and the show became that's basically where hidden camera was born but it was all kind of born out of that 100 percent idea that you're not on tv that nothing's being rolled there's no pressure just be who you are and we're going to create the circumstances around you and we're going to see how you react now today are you like pitching shows that are your own or what are you what are you up to today so i have i just came off of it's so weird the hidden camera through covid kind of like hit a damper where you'd constantly have these phone calls of, we think we're going to do this show. You'd have a meeting. It would seem like it's going to go. Then months later, nothing's happening. And so eventually I just kind of acted like it wasn't going to happen. And so I've worked on other things. Uh, I think I told you in the pre-interview, we I did an animated show for HBO where I was an editor. So years back, I used to do After Effects animation draw people in Photoshop, manipulate them in After Effects, and I sold a bunch of stuff to Fox and VH1 and different stuff like that. And so this was a show that was advertised as that kind of show. So I applied for it, and it ended up being an HBO show with a creator that I loved. It's a guy named Steve Dildarian who did a show called The Life and Times of Tim 10 years ago for HBO. And he sold this show called 10-Year-Old Tom, and he has such a specific sense of humor that it's just hysterical. And then Getting inside that show was a lot of fun where they did, they had a script that was pretty tight, but they would do these improv takes and you got to listen to them all through Zoom. And then you as the editor, you'd kind of go in and, and cut up the audio as a first pass and then take notes. And then the uh, artist would give you these giant Photoshop files and you'd be able to zoom in on them and create like your medium shot, your close close and give them room to walk if they needed to walk. And so that was just a ton of fun to work on. And that literally ended just before the, uh, just before the writer strike happened in May. That's when we delivered season two and season two is right now on HBO max for people to watch. Um, and then I got an agent in August. And so, yeah, I'm coming up with my own concepts. I'm also trying, I love true crime. True crime is something that I'm a giant fan of. So I'm always trying to get into that genre. And that's a hard nut to crack because even though you, you're an editor and you feel like you <laughs> have the skills to do everything, there's so many shows that like don't want to take a chance on somebody who's outside the genre. Um, it's hard for them to pitch to a network. It's hard for them to... So there's a lot of stuff where like I'm now trying to even cut my own samples of true crime to have so that people can see because it's so tough to crack that first job and my career as a hidden camera producer is the same thing like if it wasn't so hard and so mysterious a lot of people would get those first jobs in hidden camera and it just doesn't I mean when somebody sells a hidden camera show there's so many times that you get that phone call just because you have those credits and people feel comfortable with oh you've taken this thing from concept to delivery and obviously the Carbonaro effect had I don't know, 110 episodes of the regular show. And then we ended up doing a companion series called Double Takes and a companion series called Inside Carbonaro. And so by the end, we were probably 200 episodes or close to in. And so that's a that's a powerful credit to move forward with if somebody wants to produce it in camera. I myself have been trying to do a true crime thing for a couple of years now. Uh, Is it a real case? Yeah, it's a real it's a real case. Okay. Uh, and I had it's from my hometown and I had I had reached out to 
uh, a person who was involved in it and sounded like they were going to be down to like start doing like a, a documentary on this. Okay. And then kind of ghosted me after that. Sure. And then, so I think through like news stories and stuff that things are, you know, maybe they're finally solving this cold case, but oh, nothing, okay. nothing is finally. So this was an unsolved, this was an unsolved crime. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And that's, that's why it was appealing to me was that it was, it was like an unsolved murder. And, uh, and like, I, I knew people that were involved in, in some ways. And so. How old I, was it? Uh, it's, I think it just passed 10 years okay. of being a cold case, okay. but technically not a cold case as far as, I don't want to dive too much into murders and stuff, but it's sure. not a murder, murder podcast, but I think I, <laughs> it's I, all production though. Right. Yeah. But so like, I think, uh, they don't consider it to be a cold case because the police are actively working on it. Okay. Uh, so yeah, but I, I, I think it's. It's a very interesting story. Um, Boy, that that genetic genealogy stuff has changed everything. Yeah. The fact that they're reaching back into old cases with any DNA and tracing it familiarly down to people. I think that Golden State Killer case was a huge revelation for police, and a lot of those old cases are going to be solved that way. Now, you, you said you got an agent. You didn't have an agent previously? And, and like, what was the benefit of getting an agent? So I had an agent at the beginning of the Carbonaro Effect. There was actually a literary agent. I had actually written an hour spec drama and got a literary agent. And so he was with me when I got the Carbonaro Effect, but he really had nothing to do with getting the job. And so there was a, a couple of times where he helped negotiate the contract, but it literally was one of those ones where he's a literary agent. He ended up moving away. I think I called him about one thing and never got a call back. And so that was kind of half, that was while I was still in Atlanta. So the second half of the run of the Carbon Hour Effect, I really didn't have an agent because I had no downtime. Like between all of those three different series, I was in the enviable and unenviable position of just being like, I had time off two years from now. And if I wanted to take a week off to go see my family, I had to tell them I'm leaving this time and it would have to be between orders and stuff like that. And so it really wasn't until COVID kind of uh, was ending that I just literally went, hey, I'm not getting the phone calls that I used to get on stuff like that. And I found that 10-year-old Tom job on my own that I started reaching out to different agents and... uh, one of them responded, knew the show, and so I've been with him very a very short period of time. But uh, yeah, it's that's one of those ones that somebody's kind of taken me. Like the agency has to be in need of that hidden camera producer and other things. They're they're always trying to help you if you come up with that true crime idea that sells. They'll help you sell it. But in a lot of cases, you're into anywhere is that resume that's a quick send to people if they're in their morning meeting and somebody goes hey we have a client that sold a hidden camera show to such and such if i can be that easy hookup as a showrunner as a director as anything um that's advantageous for a uh for an agent to have now are you more passionate about the the true crime or are you going to take the hidden camera thing like are you if I, at, at at this point if a hidden camera job came up i would not turn it down my heart, I loved, like, there's so much about the law and 
I'm especially into the uh, Innocence Project stuff, the exonerations, the stuff where it's like, oh my God, my greatest like nightmare is spending time in prison for something you absolutely didn't do. And so like watching, like making a murderer, as much as I'm crazy about everything, that Brendan Dassey, that young nephew who they just get him to confess with the eye and they tell him, hey, if you just confess, you can go home to your family. Like those stories are the, that stuff just drives me nuts that they can literally lie to people and get them to confess to something they didn't do and that stuff. And so I have a real passion for, for true crime. Um, but like I said, I'm one of those people that like it at a moment, if somebody came up with a hidden camera idea, that's fantastic and is fun, like the carbonaro effect, I would jump back into that in a second. Cause that was a lot of fun to produce. I guess if you could, if you could offer uh, words of advice to someone who is aspiring to either get into film and television or get into being a showrunner, uh, what kind of advice would you give them? I would say that becoming a showrunner is a much like you got to be into the industry for a while before you become a showrunner. So for me, my advice usually is to people to get that first job and to get in. And if you have the ability to make things, like making things is the great equalizer. If you can make content, if you can make a short film, no matter what it looks like, every version you do is going to get better. And that stuff is a very powerful thing. And I'm also one of those people that, you know, when people live in Kansas or in Nebraska or whatever, you need to be where those jobs are. Like my first job was literally coming to LA, going to a temp agency and I said to the person, I'll take anything in the entertainment industry. And within a month, I was at a studio where Mad TV was. Now, if I'm not in that close proximity and Mad TV's production coordinator is coming to me all the time saying, hey, we have a table read. Can we use this stage? And I'm helping them. And I'm they're seeing me as somebody who's good at their job. When I walked into their office and said, uh, I'd love to apply for a job, the answer was, we'll get you something. <laughs> like... It wasn't like, hey, maybe let me see your resume. They'd been around me enough that it was very much we will, no matter what it is, whether it's the showrunner's assistant, whether it's a PA on set, whether it's something else, they were going to give me a job because they knew my work ethic. And I think that doesn't happen unless you're in the city where production happens. And I think Atlanta is now a viable, there's a ton of production going on in Atlanta, um, you have a story of, I don't know how exactly you got in touch with, uh, Chris Adams and Phil Britton, but like, that was a powerful thing that put you as a, you know, person pulling cable and doing whatever. And then the next day you were on a camera. Um, and I always try to tell everybody that robotic camera is one of the hardest jobs <laughs> on the planet. Like all you got to do is sit somebody down with those joysticks and go, this is much harder than you think it is. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the first episode of the Show Business Podcast. I'm Denver Bailey, and today our guest was Russell Arch. You can find Russell online at russellarch.tv, Russell Arch on Instagram, or russell.arch on TikTok. If you guys enjoyed this podcast, I hope you'll come back next week for our next episode, and be sure to subscribe. Subscribe.